Now we're in Revelation chapter 13 tonight. Revelation chapter 13. And we are coming to a portion of the Scripture that uh, perhaps has the most fanciful of interpretations concerning uh, this mysterious number 666. And so we're going to look at that as well as the beast that surrounds this number and look at the details that are given to us about it. Now, a little bit of recall from last week is required of us. We saw in the first ten verses of Revelation 13 this terrifying, horrible beast that rises up out of the sea. We see the dragon bringing it about. It has all of these heads and horns and possesses great authority and power. It blasphemes the name of God and we see that it's going to wear out the saints. It's going to cause persecution. And so we spent our time and because of Daniel 7 and that's the parallel beast imagery, we know that this beast is referring to the Roman Empire that existed from around 27 B.C. to approximately 476 A.D. This is that fourth kingdom that Daniel prophesied. There being four beasts, here's the fourth beast, this fourth kingdom that would rise up and with great power and might was going to destroy the people of God. That fits chapter 12. Remember what chapter 12 taught us. The dragon tried to destroy the Christ. Unsuccessful. The dragon tried to destroy the remnant. Also unsuccessful. And so now the dragon represented as Satan. Satan is now going to destroy verse the last verse of 17 there, the very end verse of chapter 12, going to try to destroy the people of God. Those who hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ who are the offspring of God. And so now Satan is taking his attempt against the Christians. And so that's what chapter 13 is revealing for us, is what does this look like? How is the beast going to accomplish this great destruction and persecution and killing of the people of God. And so the first ten verses revealed by a political world kingdom, the Roman Empire. There's more information given to us now because in verse 11 we're going to read about a second beast. So let's look at our scriptures and see what we have here. Revelation 13, verse 11, hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It calls it calls all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for is a number of a man, and his number is six six six. All right. 
first thing that we get in the verses 11 and 12 is we get to observe a description about the beast. We get to see a little bit of information about who this beast is. In verse 11 you'll notice it is rising out of the earth and that's different from the first beast that we saw in the first 10 verses. That one rose out of the sea. It's direct connection to Daniel chapter 7 where we saw those four beasts rising out of the sea. This is something different. This imagery shows us that we're not to go back to Daniel 7 and say, alright, this is yet another one of those four beasts. There's some Something unique about this one, verse 11 tells us this beast, not only coming out of the earth, its look, its appearance is quite different. It has two horns so that it looks like a lamb. However, when it opens its mouth, it starts talking like a dragon. And that's a pretty strange imagery, isn't it? There's quite an unusual picture that's given to us here. And the idea is that the, this, this beast is trying to look like the lamb. Trying to look like the Lamb. So you have here in verse 11 here, another beast rises out of the earth. It has two horns. It's attempting to look like the Lamb, but it reveals who it is from. He is like the dragon, and he is from the dragon. Notice also you see in verse 11 then the point that this imagery is to give us because he has two horns like the lamb but he speaks like the dragon is to show that he has a religious role. And that's the imagery that's going to be laid out for us in these next few verses. He's trying to look like the lamb. He's trying to be a deceiver and showing that well this would be the way to worship God but actually that's false. He comes from the dragon. He speaks like the dragon and so this is a great deception on his part. And then notice in verse 12, how that brings about this religious aspect. This beast, the second beast in verse 12, exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and the inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. You'll notice that there's a, a compulsion here to cause the earth to worship this first beast, to bring about worship of the Roman Empire, probably talking about the emperor worship that would go on that they would then be deified and the causing of the world to accept the emperors as from God and then the deity that they claim to themselves as sons of God, that this beast is causing the world then to worship it as that. Well, notice later on when we get further on in Revelation, in chapter 16 and verse 13, there's another description given to this second beast that looks like a lamb but talks like a dragon. And you see in chapter 16, verse 13 says I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet and so these are our three main characters of doom as we go through these chapters as we have the dragon that represents Satan we have this first beast representing the Roman Empire its emperors its great power and might that is going to persecute the people of God and now we have this second beast and one of the descriptions given to us about this second beast is that it's a false prophet. And so that fits that it tries to look like the lamb. It is a deceiver. It is trying to suggest that this is the true God. This is the way to worship God. And yet he is false because he speaks like the dragon. 
Verse 13 through verse 17 is going to show us what this beast does. Verse 13 says, And it performs great signs and even makes fire come down from heaven to the earth in front of the people. And by the signs it it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast and it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And so you see this imagery that this beast is performing great signs. And the purpose of that is to cause the inhabitants of the earth, to cause the people to worship the emperor. Say, look at these great signs that we can accomplish. Look at the things that we are doing so that it will compel the earth to then submit to this emperor worship, to submit to worshiping the empire as that which cannot be defeated like we saw last week back in chapter 13 and verse 4. And so you have this other entity that is working at that time trying to get all the people to turn away from serving the true and living God and to worship then these emperors and worship the empire. Now that leads to a lot of questions as to well what is this talking about historically? What is going on here that we can look back and say well these are some of the things that were going on at that time that we can say well maybe that then is the fulfillment. I'll give you some historical possibilities and I don't know that we have to pick one and I'm sure there's many other things that were going on at that time but just some history to help us understand some of the events that these Christians would have to deal with while they served and lived under the power of the Roman Empire. We know that there were these things called guilds. I don't want to do a 10 minute side point on all the various guilds that existed and various trade guilds, but one of the things that was, was there was a religious guild, a religious group that existed in trying to call for people to pay homage to Caesar and to worship him as divine. And so you can imagine in the various cities you would have these various groups calling for the inhabitants of that city to worship Caesar, to worship the emperor, to treat him as divine. As we get later on in the Roman Empire's history, it is fascinating. You can go to Google and and Google the coins that were minted at that time. And you will notice the inscriptions that are given on them are things like High Priest and Son of God and Son of the Divine God and things like that, that they are calling upon themselves to have this kind of worship given to them. And it wasn't just them by themselves calling out for this, that there were even guilds and groups that got together trying to cause the earth to do the very same thing. We've noted when we began our study in Revelation in chapters 2 and 3 that Asia Minor was one of the centers for imperial worship. And that's probable as to why this letter is written to them. That this is a very serious problem that these these, um, cities in Asia Minor were already involved in that kind of imperial worship. We also know historically by the end of the first century, every single city that we know of these seven churches of Asia, so Ephesus and Pergamum and Smyrna, all seven of them by the end of the first century had temples erected and dedicated to Caesar. And that's useful to know as well. 
as this is written to those seven churches of Asia, that you have a very serious problem, that you not only have imperial worship already set up in those cities, by the end of the first century there's going to be temples that are set up that are going to encourage the worship all the more of the emperors. And on top of that, there are these guilds and groups running around also trying to encourage that. We also know that there was a priesthood for the imperial cult also encouraging this all the more, that there was their own set of priests in trying to bring about people to worship the emperors. And then also quite interesting, there was this commune of Asia that was promoted uh, promoted the imperial cult and it demanded that the citizens participate in it. We have found, I shouldn't say we because I'm no archaeologist, but we in terms of historically have found that there are inscriptions and writings of the various altars that demanded that the inhabitants of all of Asia Minor had to come to Ephesus and worship and participate in this worship of the emperors as God in this commune of Asia. And I got that from Osborne, page 513 in the Baker Exegetical. So very interesting just to get a feel for what things were like. It is, I think, hard for us to project what a different world that was into today's society because we're so used to You do whatever you want to do. You want to worship your God. You want to worship some other spirituality or what have you. And everybody's hunky-dory and fine about that. But that's not the way things were at that time under the Roman Empire. Especially as the Caesars continued to demand more worship of them as divine. I think this parallels uh, a very... Uh, difficult phrase that has caused, I think, a lot of people problems in Second Thessalonians 2. Because over there we read about this man of lawlessness. And I believe the description there is describing the same people, same entity, that Revelation 13 is showing us. Over in Second Thessalonians 2, verse 3, when Paul says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Now what what's described of him who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God and we've already seen not only in our reading tonight but also from last week in the first 10 verses of chapter 13 that's the very things that that beast first beast was doing was Blaspheming against God, blaspheming against Christians, blaspheming against His dwelling, blaspheming against His name. Here Paul also describes the same events about this man of lawlessness. A couple verses later, verse 9, notice again the similarity. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Here Paul also describes these signs and wonders that would be done. Well, that fits there in verse 12 and 13 and 14. This second beast performing great signs and wonders in front of the people, bringing about them to cause them to worship this entity, to worship this beast. What I think Paul was doing is he wrote to the Thessalonians. Remember, they were saying, it's the end right now. We, we've missed. Here, here it is. It's the day of the Lord right now. And, and, and the Apostle Paul says, well, there are two things that have to happen first. There needs to be the rebellion and there needs to be this man of lawlessness. There is still predicted and prophesied by those prophets like Daniel, this fourth terrifying beast that has to rise up and persecute the people of God and cause destruction. The day of the Lord in the first century could not come until what the prophets had said took place. And that's why the Apostle Paul 
gave those descriptions up, it's going to be terrifying some of the things that are going to happen to call it the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. Here is the Apostle John now getting this information a little bit, few decades later now, a little bit of time later now saying, here's what this is going to look like for the people of God. Here's how what's going to take place. The whole world is going to be caught up in this. They're going to see the emperor as God. They are going to offer their sacrifices to him. They will proclaim him as divine. And the only people who are not going to do that are the true people of God, the Christians. And so here is a picture of what is going to be expected by the Christians. Here's what they're going to have to endure. Notice verse 15 because verse 15 gives us a a very sad note of what's about to happen. It says there, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the beast to be slain. And so here is some devastating language and a prediction now. Here's how it's going to go. This worship is going to be so significant and all the world is going to be caught up in it. And the power that the empire is going to have at that time is going to be so great that those who do not participate in worshiping this empire, in worshiping the emperors, they're going to be killed for that. They are going to suffer persecution. And this is a parallel to what we saw back in Daniel chapter 3. Notice the language there of worshiping the image of the beast. Daniel 3 is very similar. That's where we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What are they commanded to do? You need to worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And they say, oh no, we're not going to do that. And you know the end result. They're thrown into the fiery furnace for not wanting to bow down and worship. This projects that same kind of language. This demand is going to be against the Christians that you need to worship Caesar. You need to worship his image. You need to call him divine and give your offerings and sacrifices to him. And he says, and you know what's going to happen when that takes place? That the Christians are going to be persecuted. That they are going to be killed. It is interesting and it seems fairly likely that this may very well be looking toward what the emperor Domitian would do during his reign at the end of the first century. Uh, we're told that he, we have found, and we, again I'm using a we in terms of the world in archaeology, uh, we, we have found this, um, that Domitian had a colossal statue that he had set up in Ephesus and that caused and involved all of the province of Asia that they were required to go to that statue and worship Domitian through that statue. I think that's somewhat fascinating that that is one piece of the puzzle of things that were going on. Revelation may not be projecting and saying it's that one event, but it colors what the emperors were doing. This just reveals what was going on in the various cities. This wasn't in the city of Rome that this happened. This happened in the city of Ephesus. That all of that province of Asia Minor, the very churches that this letter was written to, they at one time would be called upon, you go worship the image, this colossal statue that's set up in the city, or you're going to suffer. And that's exactly what we found historically. And so it seems that Revelation is pointing to this problem, is that it's not the Roman Empire itself, that's the first image, but that these smaller groups, either these guilds, these priesthoods, and all of the world is collectively worshiping the beast and the Christians that are suffering by the hand of that. 
Notice then verse 16 as well, because a very interesting image here. It also causes both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave. Just a question there. So who, who's excluded from that? We're talking about everybody here. This is a very big problem that's about to, to, to come about here. Everybody's involved. Small and great, rich and poor, free and slave. They all are going to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, verse 17, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the image of the beast or the number of his name. So here is a picture of an economic problem. Those who would not worship the beast, those who would not participate in these religious events for the empire and for the emperor, there was going to be a time when they would no longer be able to participate in common everyday activities economically in buying and selling in marketplaces. Now, typically this verse is used for all sorts of crazy ideas about things that are going to happen in the future. I find it quite humorous to read and listen to, well, you know, all those scanners on your driver's license. There's the mark of the beast and, and that's they're keeping up with you and keeping track of you. And it's universal health care. When we all get our cards, they're going to keep up with us and the beast is going to... No. This is a figurative marking. This is a figurative picture. We don't even need to go historically back into time and say, well, when did the Roman Empire go around branding people with a number? That, that's not what happened. It is a picture that those who are with the emperor, those who will worship the empire and give their sacrifices, they will be the ones who are allowed to carry on normal economic conduct to buy and sell. But those who do not participate in that worship, they're not going to be allowed to do so. And you can imagine the difficulty of that. It would be of a similar nature if we had a great idol image set up at the front door of Publix. And to go inside, you would need to offer your incense or sacrifice to that image. And only then could you go inside and carry on and buy and sell. Otherwise, you could not. And imagine a much more agrarian society as you try to sell whatever you've grown or whatever cattle you have. You are not going to be able to sell what you have. You're not going to be able to buy the things you need. That's what's being pictured here of what the Christians are going to endure because of their refusal to worship and then participate in this emperor worship. The contrast of that is what we'll read in chapter 14 uh, next week. Who are the true people of God. They're the ones who have been sealed or marked with the Lamb. It's not a literal marking. It's a contrast to say, those who are with the beast, they have the mark of the beast. They worship and serve the emperor and obey all those laws. But those who are with Christ, they have the mark of the Lamb. They are sealed. And they do not worship the empire. They do not worship the emperor and do not participate in those things. And so there is a, a picturing of contrast in our chapter break, perhaps a little bit unfortunate because it masks that comparison is that, well, where are the true people of God? Well, we're there with the Lamb. They have the mark of the Lamb and they're sealed with Him. 
But the inhabitants of the earth, they're marked with the beast because they're aligning with him and participating in those things. And so it's just simply describing a picture and a time when those who did not submit to the emperor sacrifices and to submit to that emperor worship, they would not be allowed to participate in the normal day-to-day market affairs. And you imagine you couldn't buy gasoline if we put it in modern-day terms. You can't go to Publix. You can't do the various things that you would do. You can't go to the bank because all of these things would be off-limits to you because you'd be required to worship the emperor first. We do know that under Diocletian and Desus uh, that there were persecutions because certificates were even issued to those who were loyal to the emperor by participating this required ritual of imperial religion. Perhaps this is looking all the way out to what those emperors would do in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, perhaps. Either way, the idea is to show severe trouble for the Christians who will not bend the knee and accept and say that the emperor is divine. And we even have emperors that demanded that very thing. I I thought this statement by G.K. Beale was really useful in the New New International Greek Testament commentary. He said, There were therefore few facets of society from which Christians could escape pressures to idolatry. Indeed, the state was inextricably linked to the religious, economic, and social facets of the culture. We don't get that because religion is in its box over here and it has the whole separation of church and state and economy and it doesn't all tie together. That's not how things were then. The religion was tied to economics. The religion was tied to culture. The religion was tied to all of those various things so that if you did not participate in that emperor worship, you were excluded from the normal everyday activities that you needed to be able to survive. And that is why I think we get the picture of what's told to us in verse 15, that those who do not worship the image of the beast, they're persecuted and killed. It's not going to go well for these Christians. Can you imagine receiving a letter like this today? Can you imagine hearing these stark words of prophecy? Just want you to know what's going to go on here. I want you to know that for your faith in Christ, you're going to die. And it's going to be so severe that you're not going to be able to carry on your normal everyday activities like you used to carry on. Wow. And how troubling that must have been to hear these words to know that it was going to become that severe under the power of the Roman Empire, under this religious power that would be demanded. The Roman Empire did not begin that way, but this is what was going to develop as the emperors begin to demand more accolades and more worship and the calling of them as divine and as son of God. This would cause a problem because no Christian could ever claim Caesar to be God, to be son of God, or to be divine in any way. And so you have a clash of a world power with all of its authority and might with Christians who are preaching and teaching that there is one true God who was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. And I would have that problem. They'd die for that. And that's what leads to verse 18, where where most people spend all of the time, is the number 666. This calls for wisdom, verse 18. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for as a number of a man, the number is 666. Now, 
As we try to figure out this number, we'll spend the rest of our time looking at this number with what we have tonight. It is important to keep in mind what we have noted with all of the numbers in the book of Revelation so far. We have noted that all of the numbers have been symbolic in nature. All of them have represented something. And so the biggest question that we have is, what does this number represent? What is being told to the readers that you would use this number and say, well, 666 is it? What is is the symbol behind that? What would the Christians have understood that to mean? One of the most popular answers is Nero Caesar to calculate the numbers and say, well, Nero Caesar is what is being predicted. I would love for that to be the answer for my own conscience and soul, and I could rest easy and go, that's all it is, and move right along. But I have a lot of reasons why. I don't think that's what's being talked about here. First of all, I would say, why would Nero be the mark of the beast? What about his reign or his actions would be the picture of that? Because we do not read historically that the events that we have just read about in chapter 13 occurred under his reign. We don't read about him limiting Christians from buying and selling. We don't read that going on. We don't know of anything to that effect. This inability for commerce did not happen under his reign. Number two, I think Nero would be befitting of the first beast. In fact, in our Revelation class, we talked about perhaps... That's the head that was wounded there in that first image, that first beast. That first beast represents the political and military might. It represents the emperors. And the second beast is causing everybody to worship the first beast. It's not Nero. It's causing everybody to worship Nero or Domitian or Diocletian or all the emperors as they came along. And so that doesn't fit either. Third, You may know that getting Nero from 6-6 to 6 needs many hops, skips, and jumps, and leaps of faith to get there. It requires converting 6-6-6 from the Greek into the Hebrew, then converting the Hebrew into numbers, and then those numbers, from converting those numbers, represents an unusual spelling of Nero Caesar, one that was not common in that day. That doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of reasons to me. One, why would you convert from Greek to Hebrew? What have we done in the Revelation that demands that we would do that? Further, would the readers have known to do that? Would the readers have known who took this letter and said, okay, now the first thing I need to do to calculate that is to take this verse and translate it into Hebrew. On the basis of what? In fact, it assumes even that the readers hadn't had the knowledge of Hebrew to be able to do that. Which, why would we assume this? It was not written to the church in Jerusalem. It wasn't written to Jewish Christians. It's written to the seven churches of Asia. And I would also show that it assumes the knowledge of this gematria, which is the converting of numbers into letters. It assumes that the audience would even be able to do that. For me, this is way too many leaps to say, well, that's what they did, is that they all knew Hebrew, and that's, they, when they read that number, they knew to convert it to Hebrew, and then they knew to convert that into, this, into the letters, and that's how they got the letters. I, I, I don't find that, that to be useful. Furthermore, this converting of numbers into words or letters never happens in the Bible anywhere else. Never anywhere else do we do that. We never come across any other number in the Bible and go, okay, now let's start converting that into a word. 
We're not ever told to do that. And then probably to seal the deal all the more, this method of changing numbers into letters has been used to prove nearly every other ruler that has come along ever since Nero. And that's what's somewhat fascinating as well. Some have used those numbers to calculate it for the abbreviated Greek title for Domitian. Some have added the numbers to come up with Emperor Titus. Some have used the initials of Julius and all the emperors from Julius all the way to Domitian. And if you take all of their initials and add them all together, then you get the 666. Some have taken the letters and the numbers into letters so that it refers to the Roman Catholic Church apostasy. Some have taken the numbers and converted them into Martin Luther. Some have taken them to John Calvin. And some even have calculated it into Adolf Hitler. To me, that suggests this isn't the right way to go. If we can get all of these answers by taking three numbers and converting it into another language and start coming up with all these different names. That's not what I think the way to go. The second aspect that we need to concern ourselves with about 666, first of all, doesn't seem to be Nero. Number two is it may not be asking for a particular person. And let me show you why. When it says there, for the, it is the number of a man, that word man is anthropos. That word does not necessarily declare gender or even a specific individual. It can refer to humanity. That is a word that is often used when we have in our translation like brothers and sisters. It is talking about a group of people many times, not specifically to a male. It is used broadly. So it could be a man, it could be a female, it could be a whole host or group of people. And some of the translations reflect that. New Revised Standard it's the number of a person not going with man to show it could go either direction. God's Word translation uses because it is a human number. The net does the same thing. It is man's number. And I think the Revised Standard, I wish the ESB had stayed with it, for it is a human number and then amplified along with a few others, it is a human number. The idea is to show it doesn't necessarily say here that it is one particular man and figure out who that man is. It doesn't necessarily mean that. And it doesn't even necessarily mean it's a person. It can also just mean it's a human number. It could be something like that. And I think that is the more rational way to look at what is being described for us. Notice in Revelation 15 and verse 2, this imagery comes back into play again. This isn't the only time we read about this mark of the beast or the number of the beast. Revelation 15 and verse 2, it says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast, its image, and the number of its name. There's that 666 number right there. Standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And so the imagery comes out again. And I do not believe that what this is saying is, and I saw those who had conquered the beast, its image and the number of beasts, that the Christians had conquered Nero. That doesn't fit our timeline of what's going on in Revelation to say, and now I see the Christians who were victorious over him. That's not historically accurate. It doesn't make a lot of sense to the text either. What we need to do, I think, is understand and take what we have done all throughout the book and do it here. The numbers represent symbols. And we've noticed all throughout so far 
that seven has always represented perfection. We've had seven churches. We have had seven seals. We have had seven trumpets. We have had seven thunders. We will see seven bulls. Why not eight? Why not nine? Why not 24? Well, seven is representing this is the perfect judgments that are coming from God. And so here are the seven seals. Here are the seven trumpets. The complete, perfect judgments and decrees of God. Six then has been typically understood as to be incomplete. If you're not at seven, you're one shy. It's a symbol of incompleteness. Seven is complete and perfect. Six is that you did not measure up to it. And that, for me, fits best the imagery of what this second beast is all about. What was the first thing that we were told? This beast is trying to look like the lamb, but it's not. It is trying to be a pretender. It is a false prophet that is trying to deceive the world, to deceive the people so that they will worship the empire, to worship the emperors, to worship the first beast. And so it is doing its job but by trying to look like the lamb, but it is really not. It falls short of being the lamb, though it tries to appear that way. It is incomplete. And so why would that be three times? Why not just say, and its number is six. And I believe it is for intensity. To be able to say, I want you to grasp how incomplete this thing is. This is not from God. Do not be swept away in this falsehood. It is entirely incomplete. And we see that used by God in a number of ways when He will say six times, yes for seven, or verily, verily, I say to you, truly, truly, repetition for emphasis, to truly drive home the intensity of how horrible and how incomplete and how much this beast that appears to be the Lamb falls short of actually being the Lamb. So when it says here in verse 18, this calls for wisdom, Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. It is calling for wisdom and understanding, not for mathematical smarts, that we've got to break out all these crazy ideas of how to do math and subtract it and spell it. That's not the calculation. Consider the message of what this section is saying. We're going to have a false prophet. We're going to have this beast, this entity that is causing the world to worship the emperor. It is propelling all that. And it's doing it under the guise of being from God, performing these great signs, trying to get people to worship the emperor and the empire as if it is God. Be smart. Have wisdom. Do not be taken in by the deception. Do not think that this is the way to worship God. It is false. Another way to say it would be have spiritual perception and recognize that this worship is not from God. In fact, it is unholy. It is imperfect. It is incomplete. It is certainly not from God. It is from the dragon. It is from Satan. And that's how that verse in verse 11 works so well. It's trying to deceive you into thinking you're worshiping God. But it's actually from Satan. It's from the dragon. It speaks like the dragon. Have spiritual perception. 
Have understanding. Consider the mark and the number. It appears to be godly. It is not. It appears to be true worship. It is false. It's trying to dupe you into worshiping the emperor so that you can do all of your normal everyday commerce and events and marketplace activities. Don't fall for it. Be smart. Show wisdom and avoid. I think that's what is being summed up. And that's why chapter 15 could say the Christians overcame the number of the beast. Not that they overcame an emperor. They were smart. And they did not fall into the trap of worshiping the beast. They overcame. They are shown as victorious because they showed the spiritual perception and wisdom to continue to worship the true and living God even though the rest of the world did not. And I want to leave you then with just one lesson for tonight that comes from our text. And it is the teaching that there is grave danger in false worship. And it is something that is easy for us to fall into. And that's what is coming out of this final paragraph of Revelation 13, is to recognize that we cannot worship anything that is not truly God. And sometimes I think we falsely think we may be worshiping God or we justify ourselves into worshiping God when in fact that's not what we're doing in the slightest. How often I have heard Christians say, if I had so much, and they you know, put dollar number on it, if I had X amount of wealth, can you imagine all the good I could do for God and the kingdom? And that's why I do the things that I'm doing. That's why I'm working as hard as I'm working. Or that's why I'm participating in these get-rich schemes. Or I'm part of these pyramid things or these networking things. And that's, that's why I'm doing all that. Because when I do all that and I put all my time and effort, can you imagine how great it will be that I can give so much to God and do these things for God? And that's false worship. You're fooling yourself into thinking that you're worshiping God by acquiring all of this stuff. That's how I can give my devotion to God. I'll show everybody how much I love God. I'll get filthy rich so that I can do good things for God. Do not be fooled. Do not suppose that you can worship wealth in the name of the Lord. And we have many of these kinds of gods. We have it also for health today. We have all sorts of people telling us, you know, worship God by getting in touch with your inner self. And, you know, don't use doctors. Be completely holistic and, you know, eat a plant and that's going to make you well. And it's, it's all going to take care of you. And, and how great it is to worship God because God's made it so that you can take care of yourself and be healthy through what He's created on the... Watch it. Do not think that you're worshiping God through your own health and body. Do not think that that's the way to worship God either. We have to be so careful that we do not get sucked into the falseness of this world. And that's a very new age thing. That's what, you know, if you yoga, you know, you'll get your inner center and then you'll be able to worship God better. Or if you eat this, you'll find your you know, digestive center. And then you'll be able to worship God better. And, and Oprah's got all sorts of great stuff with all the spirituality that she's pumping out. I, I am so perturbed about the new channel she's just unleashed 
on us this year. OWN, Oprah Winfrey Network. And if you read the description, it's so that we can encourage self-awareness and discovery. Gag. Wrong. Stop acting like you're worshiping God through that garbage. But that's what, oh, this is the way to find God. No, it's not. You're worshiping things that are false, suggesting that it is godly when it is far from it. Be careful. Idolatry still lives on today. And the deception is not turn away from God and go do what you want. No, the deception is I will do this and through this I will serve God. That's the lie. That's what the false prophet's doing. Worship the emperor. Then you can buy and sell and do all these things and think of all the goods you can do. Just worship the emperor. Just just do a little bit of sacrifice there and through that you can worship God. No, you cannot. And our world is so primed with the same false thinking. May we not be swept away. Let us worship God directly and worship God alone. We do not need wealth. We do not need health. We do not need stuff. We do not need centeredness or balance or any of those things to worship the true and living God. Pull your song books out.